0: Okay. Yeah. Got a lot of kids. Okay. (laughs) But I'm here and my wife is there, so it's much easier on me. So let's get right into scripture. It comes from Colossians 3 verses 12 and 13. So a short passage. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. So also, sorry, so you also must forgive. Now, uh, on Boxing Day a few years ago, in the New York Times, a professor at the University of Boston um, named Charles Griswold uh, had this wonderful article called On Forgiveness. And in it, he laments about how horrible the world is. It's all, you know, going to heck in a handbasket. And that the only possible hope, he sees, is forgiveness. Now, he's not a Christian, but here's what he says. Without a constructive answer to toxic anger, addictive cycles of revenge, and immobilizing guilt, we seem doomed to despair about chances for renewal. One answer to this despair lies in forgiveness. And Griswold, although he pays lip service to Christianity, he does occasionally get into spots where he talks about Jesus being a great teacher on forgiveness, he actually has a flawed diagnosis because he ultimately decides that this is what forgiveness is. It is fundamentally a moral relation between the self and the other. And by other, he doesn't mean in a Martin Buber sense of other, other being the holy transcendent God, the other. He means you and I. And what he reduces, and this is common in the world, we reduce forgiveness to a horizontal interaction. Okay, we think the only problem, really, the only thing stopping us from being a good people is we've just got to get over it. Just got to get over our problems. And now this passage, okay, because if that's the case, if really all the problem is with humanity is we have to try harder, then there's a problem. And this passage that we just read, as short as it is, and I'm going to try to put this into two points instead of three, um, is going to present us with a problem with this, this thesis of Griswold's and then with a solution, okay? The problem and then the solution. So let's jump directly in. So here's the problem. Is the wireless on? So if I walk away... Oh, perfect. Here's the problem. The problem Paul presents us with is this. We must forgive. Okay? You have to. <laughs> there's a problem there because you can't. Okay? We just can't. See, there's a thing Griswold misses is it's not just a lack of willpower. It's a fact that we cannot seem to forgive. And it's, it's, you see it all through history. So if you think about you know, protest songs in music, you had Bob Dylan's blowing in the wind Um, You had uh, 99 Red Balloons, for those of you who are 80s and 90s kids, um, by Naina. You have the Cranberries, wrote a song called Zombie, about the uh, the, uh, Irish uh, Civil War, Irish problems there. More recently, we have System of a Down, Radiohead, Tribe Called Quest, Kendrick Lamar, all writing these protest songs about war and struggles. And here's the gist of them. Just get over it. Israel, Palestine, really? 2,000 years? You can't get over it? Just stop it, you know, uh, they just get over your problem, just forgive, coexist, bumper stickers. Now, here's the problem with that. I, I, I do agree with the sentiment. As Christians, don't we think the same thing? Let's get there. The problem is we can't seem to do it, and this, um, this, I think, is why. First, let's use a very practical example. If any of you have gone through a relationship breakup, a divorce especially, you know how hard it is to forgive because that other person knows you so intimately. They know you so deeply, they know your insecurities, and doesn't that come out in the breakup? Don't they poke that because they want to hurt you? And that's when you can say, hey, when I'm betrayed, if I'm a a woman who has been cheated on, or my kids and I have been abandoned, that doesn't just, it's not just a, a transaction, that taints how you see people, how you see marriage, how you see your church that doesn't know how to deal with you, and doesn't know how to interact with people who are broken, it, it covers everything. So, so to just say, can't you just get over it? not well, just naive. And not only that, let's use an example. Let's see why. The problem is so much deeper for this reason. I get this example from another preacher, so I wish I could take credit. But here's this example. Imagine you and I are, are friends, which we're not, by the way. No, I'm joking. I don't know any of you. Um, so one of you comes and you, says, you say, Kevin comes to me and says, Carl, you know what? I've got a big job interview. And um, I need a suit that I can wear to my job interview. Can you lend me your suit? So assuming we fit in the same, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'll make it. You'll make it into mine. Um, So I give him my suit to use for this, for this job interview, but he brings it back to me the next week and it has been, it's set on fire. It's been eaten by moths. It's been destroyed completely. The, The suit is useless to me. He hands it to me now. What is it that allows me to forgive Kevin or not to forgive him? See, the question ultimately in this story is one of net worth. You see, if I have a closet full of suits, I say to him, "Eh, no big deal. Enjoy the tattered suit. Wear it again. Um, It's yours. You know, but what if I don't have any more suits? What if I'm suitless and I'm thinking, I have a job interview next week and a funeral and a a wedding. I kind of need that. You see, then my lack of net worth means I can't forgive him. I have to say, listen, um, I kind of need the suit. So either get me a new one or fix the burned suit you've, you've burned. So you see the net worth is an issue and it's not just by an illustration. You see the Lord's prayer says that debts forgiving, forgiving people, their debts. Why is it commercial language that Christ uses? Okay? And the reason is because, like it or not, sin is a transaction. And I'll explain what I mean. When um, I'll use the example again. If, if there's a divorce, that woman, that man, depending on how that situation works out, they've been robbed of something. They've been robbed of years, of dignity, of reputation, of peace of mind, of... Com- name it, if you've been through a divorce. There is a debt there. We've been robbed. When somebody gossips about you, you've been robbed of your reputation. When you've been fired, when you get when Kevin gives you a bad mark, uh, you're robbed of your dignity and self-worth. <laughs> you see, there's a transactional thing here, and what determines if I can forgive my cheating spouse, my employer, my my professor, the suit borrower, is whether or not I've got a closet of suits. Okay. This is a fundamental problem because you and I tend to be, and this is what Griswold misses in his article, is we are emotionally impoverished. We have no suits. So when somebody robs me of my reputation, I can't forgive them because I have nothing in the closet. They've just taken the only thing I have. All I have before you is my Instagram account. Or my reputation. Or as a preacher, all I have is my preaching. If I lose this 30 minutes, who am I? And because I have no identity outside of that little thing, my closet's empty. I can't forgive you when you rob me of it because you've taken the only thing I have. See? And this is a problem that I don't think Griswold gets. But we know this. Okay? We know we're insecure. And we'll get to that in the next point. So if that's our problem, we simply are emotionally impoverished. We have nothing to give. We can't forgive because we've been, when we've been, somebody has sinned against us, we have nothing. That's all, they've taken everything from us. So what is the solution? So if Paul presents us that problem, we can't forgive, how do we get over it? Well, there's, a few, there's two reasons he gives us. And let me give you a quick way we try to fill up our closet with suits in a, in a counterfeit way, okay? in a way that doesn't work. The first one is this. Um, you try to acquire the good opinion of other people. You see, because we have no reputation. How do you get a reputation? Or uh, if you, if you're a, my, my mother, my, my mother is Freudian. My wife um, well, came out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> I have to see the counseling majors. But so, if my wife is a stay-at-home mom, which she is, and she homeschools all of our kids, there is a sense in which. You don't just, and it's a very C.S. Lewis thing here, you don't just want to be a good mom. You kind of want to be the best mom, don't you? You want to have them read the best books. You want to make sure they go on nature walks more than the other moms. There's this little rivalry there. And we try to build uh, our closet full of other people's opinions of us. Okay? And we do this constantly. I mean, I go to people's homes and the bookshelves are beautiful. You ask them a question about the books, they've never read them. Um, we do this con- and uh, everybody, we do this all the time and deep down. We are so worried that we're not the people we present ourselves to be. There's the insecurity. When I worked for H and R block, um, Kevin mentioned it, I, w- I worked for six months with them as a local guy here in Ontario. And then after six months, they made me the national director. That was terrifying. I was in no way prepared to do, to do that job. But of course I take it because it builds up, it fills up my closet with who I am. But you know what? For that first year, every time somebody at a conference was coming to talk to me, I was terrified. And the reason I was terrified is I knew I was not the person they thought I was. I wasn't prepared for the job. I was a fraud. And I was worried every time they came that if they asked, just asked the right question, they'd see the emperor was not wearing any clothes and I didn't deserve that, that promotion. Because deep down I knew I wasn't ready for it. We see this in the garden, by the way. When Adam and Eve hide, it's because when they claim hold of being God for themselves, they deep down know, I'm not God. So they're afraid. God comes looking and they hide. See, here's the issue. You and I. Oh, I can't get there yet. It's the next point. I'm not allowed to get there yet. I'm jumping ahead. So this is the issue we've got. Okay, so we are frauds. We're filling our own closets. And the only way to fill it up because you see with those reput- people saying those things, it just makes it worse. You see, and I'm a guy who likes to read books. I love for you to think I'm very smart. I love it, but you know what? Deep down inside, even though I've read the books, I've got the degrees, I'm terrified you're gonna figure out I'm a fraud. I'm not nearly as smart as you think I am. I'm not even close and that's because some part of me has built my reputation on these accomplishments and not on Christ. And how does it fix? How do we resolve this situation? How do we fix it? How do we fill the closet in an authentic way? And in this text, Paul gives us two examples. The first one is when he says at the very outset that we are um, God's chosen ones. You see, this is a very value-based consumer culture. And senior citizens especially are learning that you are only valuable in this country so long as you're productive. And once you're not productive, there goes your value. You see, value is very interesting in our culture. And if that's the case, um, understanding that you are chosen, I'm sorry, it's not the doctrine of election if you're not one of those, but if understanding that you are chosen fundamentally roots out of you that idea that your value is rooted in how great your resume is at your high school reunion, how big your church is, how many degrees you have, how great your Instagram account looks, all of that falls away when you know you're chosen. Because if value is determined by what you are, somebody would pay for you, what does it mean when Christ and God of the universe paid everything for you? Your value is so huge that when somebody comes and picks on your sermon and says it's terrible, or picks on your kids and says, shouldn't the pastor's kids not be running in church? By the way, that does happen to my kids. Um, then you can say, yeah, I... Although I I love my brothers and sisters, I don't need the opinion of an ant when I have the opinion of the king. I don't. There's this comfort that comes. That's one way of filling the closet with the value that Christ gives us. The second one, which is maybe more profound, is near the tail end of that section when he says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. So here's our issue with being seen. It was a paradox of humanity. We desperately want somebody to see everything. They want us, we want somebody to see into our core who we really are so we can stop hiding. And yet we're terrified because we've believed the lie that if somebody really saw you, they wouldn't love you. I mean, it's impossible. And this is a problem for us. And think about this example. Have you ever been, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, imagine you're, you're gossiping about somebody. You're talking about a coworker, which I know you do it. Um, we all do at some point, but you're doing it and you think you're being very godly, but then you realize the person you're talking about is standing right behind you and heard every word. Then, you know that feeling you get of not just that pit in your stomach, like, ah, crap, um, but the desire to run. Don't you want to run away? It's kind of like walking down the street and the sniper shoots at you and all you hear is the bullet and you don't know what to do and you panic and you look for cover. Why? Because you've been exposed. Somebody has seen who you really are, and you can't see them. You're under the gaze of somebody who's seen you. That person you've gossiped about has seen who you really are, and you can't stand it. So you run for cover. And now, so here's the problem. We want to be seen, but we don't think we can And, you know, there's this movie from the 90s, I guess it's from the 90s, called The Fisher King, Robin Williams, remember? I don't think it did very well. I don't know how well it did. But in it, Robin Williams plays this um, homeless guy who I think he was a professor, and secretly he has been watching this young lady, this girl Annie, and he sits outside, even though he's homeless, he sits outside her building where she works, and he watches her come out at lunch, and he follows her, and he just admires her from afar, okay? Okay. And he falls in love with her. And he eventually confronts her and speaks with her. And this is what he says. And she melts, by the way, when he says this. He says, I'm in love with you. And not just from tonight. I've known for a long time. I know you come out from work at noon every day. And you fight your way out that door again. And then you get pushed back in. And three seconds later, you come back out again. I walk with you to lunch. And I know if it's a good day if you stop and get that romance novel at the bookstore. I know what you order. And I know that on Wednesdays you go to that dim sum parlor. And I know that you get a jawbreaker before you go back to work. And I know you hate your job and you don't have any friends. And I know sometimes you feel a little uncoordinated and you don't feel as wonderful as everybody else. And feeling as lonely and as separate as you feel, I still love you. I love you. And I think you're the greatest thing since spice racks. Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Um, and I would be knocked out several times over if I could just have that first kiss. And I won't be distant. I'll come back in the morning and I'll call you if you let me. You see, and she falls apart. She falls for this homeless guy. Why? Because he has seen her. He has seen her depths of who she is, how clumsy she is, how the world seems to not value her. And in, although she, he sees how low she feels about herself, he still loves her. We all crave it. We desperately want it, and until we embrace that this is possible, you're never going to forgive, because your closet's going to be full of suits that can't protect you from anything. Now, um, let me start to close here, start to close. That's a good pastor talk for 30 more minutes. No, it'll be over very soon. Um, now this is, the, this is the cross. So the cross shows is the only place where you see both. You see how deeply flawed you are. the cross was that necessitated your deep flaw. And yet you see how deeply loved you are. And, not, and not, let's not do it in just a simple pastoral way. Let's, do, let's dig deep into what it means. Because to forgive as Christ has forgiven you is not just to say, well, he's given, forgiven everything and just gloss over it. Think about the depths of it. In talking about um, our art and how we paint Jesus with clothes on, even though we know the Romans were, I probably would have stripped him naked. We don't picture Jesus naked on the cross, do you? Now Kurt Thompson, a psychologist, said this about, about the cross. This is why the crucifixion in Jesus' naked body is such a big deal. Even our artwork depicting the event, even in our artwork depicting the event, we don't strip him naked. We have a loincloth around him, and that's all well and good, but it suggests that we don't want God going that far. but he does. God submitted himself to the shame of the cross. He has been there, and he says, "I'm willing to go, go with you where you are not even willing to go yourself." You see, you and I have to stare at the cross and drink full what it means. And I'm not trying to suggest that we go paint pictures of Jesus naked. But you see, the fact that we don't put him there is a suggestion that we don't want to think he went that far, but he did. He went that far for you and I. And we need to see the depths of shame he was willing to take on for your sake. Because when you see how deep you were and yet how loved you were, how Hebrews says that for the hope set before him, he endured the cross What hope? What hope? What did the master of the universe not have that he was going to get from the cross? The answer is you. You were that great hope. And when you see that, how deeply loved you are, even though he's seen you to your core, not only is that deal with your judicial problem of sin with God, but it frees you up to go out into the world with forgiveness. So when somebody comes and gossips about you, you can say, hey, I respect it. Maybe you're partly right in what you said. But I've got a closet full. I'm so full of identity and value in Christ. I can forgive you. And the only way you're going to get that is by staring at the cross, by coming to Christ. And then of course, that frees you up to actually stop seeing the gospel as so narrow as seeing it as just a judicial thing of I owed a debt and Jesus paid my debt. Yeah. And then he frees you up to go you see, because you're not just freed from something, you're freed for something. And to forgive is a beginning that will free you up to be the person Christ wants you to be in your community, in your homes, your workplaces, in the world, in Calgary, in Tyndale. Okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you, for, um, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the fact that it is so um, it's sharp. Double-edged is—I don't even know if there's such a thing, Lord—as a triple-edged, but you cut right to the core of us in it, and help us to to take your word seriously, and not just to take it seriously as authoritative, but then to to chew on it, to meditate it, to turn it over in our mouths like a hard candy until it dissolves into us. Um, God, we thank you for Paul, thank you for the word, Lord, thank you for the fact that you gave everything, thank you that you even endured things that we don't want to talk about that you gave everything for our sake. And when, as we recognize that, um, we take on your yoke and we begin to see how uh, how freed we are, how full our closet is with value, identity, reputation, so that when the world mocks us as it does and will, we can turn to it and say, thank you. I have a Savior who died for me. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I'm supposed to say the benediction to you. So I'll just do a very uh, not formal one and say... Um, Go out into the world in the full assurance. I'm assuming people here are all Christians, but in that full assurance you have as Christians that your grip on him is actually not what matters. It's his grip on you. And knowing that you can't be plucked from his hand, go out into the world. Be bold. Be like Super Mario Brothers, where you know you have unlimited lives so you can be bold and try to jump over a chasm that you know you're never going to make because it's not the end of you. You've got more lives. Let's do that. That's the worst benediction ever, but let's do that. Thank you. (laughs)